0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org.
1: Our scripture reading is from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my heads, also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. You guys can have a seat.
0: You guys can turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 13 this morning. Just as, as we begin, I'd like you to imagine something. Imagine that it was the last hour of your life, that you knew your death was coming, that you knew you had but just a short time. Imagine that you knew that. How would you act? What conversations would you have? What would you say to your loved ones? What would your last parting words, what would you want them to be? I'm sure that they would be words of substance. I'm sure that the trivial would be set aside and that you would deal with what's most important. No matter the difficulty, you would have the conversations that you've been waiting to have. You'd want them to know, listen, my words can be counted now. I need you to know these things. Well, here in John 13 through 17, we have that conversation with Jesus. What are his last words? I've been waiting to get to this point. I mean, I've said it a lot of times. There's a lot of amazing passages that we have looked at in the gospel of John. The upper room discourse that we are starting today, John 13 through 17, is not going to disappoint. Not because of anything I'm going to say, but because of what is said here. This is Jesus' parting words with his disciples. What awaits us and them in this section, John 13 to 17, will can be confusing and even frightening at times. We're gonna sense the, the, the tension in the air. Christ, what are you saying? Because when Jesus finishes these words, he's gonna walk out of this room. He's gonna go across the brook of Kidron, enter into the garden of Gethsemane and be arrested By his accusers. In a few short hours, his disciples will think all is lost. They will look upon the cross and assume Rome has won. They'll look upon the cross and assume God has abandoned them. And because of that, we're actually going to see the disciples abandon Jesus. But before any of the violence begins that we're going to get to in chapter 18, we have this moment of hope. We have Jesus' last words to his disciples because Jesus needs them to understand some things. And they might not understand it now. In fact, they won't understand it now. But he needs them to understand that the glorious finale of the long-awaited promise is here. He will soon say it is finished. He will soon say it is done. But before he goes, before he gets to that point... Christ needs them to hear a few last words. This is indeed Christ's final hour. We've been talking about that. The hour has come. We've been talking about that in, in, in uh, chapter 12. This is his last hour, and we get to look at his parting words to his disciples. So as I said, I'm excited for this section. But before we get into any of that today... I want to talk about this section in general. I want to kind of offer some structure so that you can understand maybe the gospel of John just a little bit better. The gospel of John has a relatively straightforward structure. We saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, we saw the prologue where John sets everything up. This is what you're about to see. He goes, I'm about to tell you a story, and these are the details. And then he tells us a story. That's the first eight, sorry, 18 verses, not 13, 18 verses of the gospel, John 1 to 118. In the last 25 verses, 21 through 1 through 5, is the epilogue, where John says, this is what I told you. This is what you need to know. But in between those two sections, the prologue and the epilogue, the book can be split into two sections, two parts. In fact, commentators actually call it two books. The first part, first book, first section, has been called the book of signs. That's what we just looked at. We've seen seven miraculous signs that are proclaiming Christ's divinity. The words and the works of Jesus all point to the fact that he is the Messiah and he is our Savior. That's what we have looked at. And that ended last week in chapter 12, verse 50. We're now entering the second part, the second book, the second section. And this has been called the book of passion or the book of glory. The glory that was hidden from the world because they rejected him, now is increasingly being revealed to Jesus' disciples and those who trust and love him. One, one way this has, has been described is that the near John's gospel gets to the climax, the more and more we learn about what's going on inside our Lord. This is Jesus in, in, in a very intimate moment opening up his heart to his disciples and us. Really saying, this is what you need to know. Now, part two, what we just entered, chapter 13, kind of begins abruptly. Like the way that John lays out his gospel when he gets to the Passion Week, this final week, the week that we're in, he doesn't, do, he doesn't lay it out like Matthew or Luke does, where we're giving this chronological on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. John ends the book by talking to the crowds, and then all of a sudden we pick up with 13 people in the upper room it's thursday night and jesus and his 12 disciples are having a meal that's what we're ushered into here that's and ushered into this conversation this meal takes place on thursday night and just to kind of give us some timeline by this time friday less than 24 hours later jesus is laying in a tomb dead so we're talking last hours we're really meaning last hours and the disciples, I'm sure, are thinking, oh, this is like any other meal that they've had together. I mean, they've been, they've been with each other for three and a half years. I can imagine that sometime in that three and a half years, there was some meal where it was just the 13 of them. So they thought, oh, good, yeah, we, we enjoy these. And we're going to get into it. They had some interesting conversations before this happened. But this meal changes everything. Jesus knows what's coming. But his disciples have no idea how much the next 24 hours are going to change their life. The fact that Jesus is going to the cross it will be a surprise to his disciples, all of them. They will scatter, they will all leave, but it's not a surprise to Christ. Because from the beginning, everything in Christ's life has been leading to this point. We've said multiple times, Jesus came for a very clear purpose. He took on flesh to save sinners. And Jesus does not head towards his death casually. Jesus does not head towards his death blindly. He has been traveling around Galilee for the last three and a half years, teaching and performing miracles for the Jews and the Gentiles. But in his last hours, he leaves the crowded marketplaces. He leaves the large gathering. And he goes into a quiet room with his precious disciples, and he lays out his heart for them. That's what we get to look at in the upper room. Now, for our text today, we get to see... This beautiful picture of how Jesus starts this discourse. And I, I, I love how John, he, he almost gives like a mini prologue to the second part of the book. He's got a couple, I, I'd say like run-on sentences here. You're Like, okay, John, we get the point because he's, he's summing everything up. We, we, we saw this in the first three verses that Matt just read says this in 13.1, now before the feast of the Passover, when when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into his heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, you're like, get to the point, what's he doing? Rose from supper. I want to look at just the first three verses for a minute. Because these verses both point backwards at Jesus has done and forwards at what Jesus will do. There's an intentionality in these verses that we have seen in all of Jesus' ministry, but it's summed up so well here. There's a resolution in the air. Jesus came to do something. He will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. I mean, just think of verse 1 now before the Feast of the Passover. Jesus Knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, and having loved his own from this world, he knew that he had come. The reason of his coming was not a surprise to him. We've looked at this in the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to belabor that point. But I love the last phrase of verse one He loved them to the end. I fall in love with this phrase because, again, the intentionality, the resolution that's here, He loved them. To the end. What's that mean? He loved them completely. He loved them fully. In fact, the kind of the best translation that I like, he loved them utterly. He's looking at them, and his love for his disciples is deeper than anything that I think we could ever describe to each other. I mean, it is this love that is just embodied in the depths of his soul. He loved them to the end. But what was the phrase before that? having loved his own who were in the world. As a believer, y- you're a part of that. He loved you utterly. He loved you completely. He loved you fully. He loved you to the end. What, what does that mean? That means he doesn't just start us on this journey called the Christian life. He doesn't start us on this good path. He doesn't, you know, set us up for success and then say, now you take it from here. What that literally means is that Jesus accomplished Everything left, nothing to chance, nothing to us. He completed it. Again, think about the words we're going to get to in John. I don't know which passage, 20, 20. It is finished. He loved them to the end. It is finished. I have done everything. You can rest. You can stop. You can trust. He loved them to the end. And then verse 2, during supper. Just again, as John is painting this picture of what's going on in this room. During supper, he, he there's this juxtaposition of what's in the room. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Again, knowing Jesus knew this. Jesus is looking at his 12 disciples, and one of them, he goes, he's about to kick him out of the room. We're not gonna look at that uh, passage today. It's gonna be next week. But Jesus knew who was there. He knew what was happening. He knew as he is de- having these last departing words, and this is the guy who's going to Betray me. This is the guy who's going to get me arrested. This is the guy that in a few short hours is going to kiss me on the cheek. And then just one last thing. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Verse 3 reminds us of the finality and the sufficiency of God's plan of salvation. If I could just sum up verse three, I'd say this. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what God required. Jesus knew, that he was sent to this, Jesus knew what he was sent to the earth to do. Jesus knew what his disciples needed to hear. Jesus knew how it was all going to end. Imagine sitting at this dinner. And I, I, I struggle to even use this, this illustration because we can't be, but like, and being Jesus, knowing. The, the disciples are talking about how good the hummus is. They're talking about what, what they're gonna do tomorrow. They're talking about the funny story that, that they just heard down the street. And Jesus is sitting there knowing, guys, you have no idea. Thousands of years of promise is about to be fulfilled. In the morning, imagine that the promise of Genesis three fifteen. Thousands of years, six thousand years at this point, thousands of years of waiting. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this to continue? When, Lord, are you going to send the person who's going to crush the head of Satan? When are you going to rid us from this body of death? When can we have hope again? When, we, when can we finally say it is done? Jesus knew that's just about to happen. I say all of that because I think we have to have, to understand what we're about to look at over the course of the next couple of months, I think we have to have that, that, that level of intentionality and finality in our mind this is not just a throwaway happenstance conversation. This is the last conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples prior to the cross. And he's like, you need to hear some things. So I want to return to the question that I first proposed to you. If it was your last hour, what would you say? If you had only 10 or 12 or 14 hours left, what would you want to do? What conversations would you want to have? What actions would you want to take place? I think you'd parse every word. I think you would leave nothing to chance. I think you would consider every action. I think that you would make sure that your time is well spent because you can't get every second back. So let's ask that question about what Jesus did. Jesus knew, again, what's coming. So why did Jesus take his precious time to wash his disciples' feet? That's the section that we're in. As it continues, rose from supper after we have this finality, this intentionality of Christ knows what's going on. He rose from supper and he laid aside, this is verse 4, his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured out water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It took me, what, maybe 25 seconds to read that verse? He washed 12 people's feet. I bet he washed them well. I bet it's not just like spritzing some water and going, you're good. I bet he washed them really well. How long do you think that would take? Like, this is an intentional act. This is not a throwaway thing. We're going to look at it. This is an action that, that took everyone back. You're like, holy cow, Jesus, what are you doing? So the question I've really been asking myself is why is this the particular action that Jesus wants to do to set the theme and the intention of the hour? Why does Jesus, before he gets into any of the details that we're going to look at between 13 and 17, why does he start by washing his disciples' feet? Thinks because he knew that in order for them to understand what he's about to say, they needed to see a picture of it first and foremost. Flannery O'Connor was once asked, the writer, if she could describe one of her short stories in a one sentence. And her response was great. It was like, hey, can you sum up the short story for us? Here was her response. This was talking about summing up the theme of it. When you can state the theme of a story, when you can separate it from the story itself, then you can be sure that the story is not a very good story. The meaning of a story has to be embodied in it. It has to be made concrete in it. A story is a way to say something that can't be said in any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You can tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. When anybody asks what the story is about, the only proper thing is to, tell them the, is to tell him to read the story. I think that's what the scene is before us. Jesus could describe what he's about to do. He could describe this, this story. He could give us the details. He could give us all, you know the, this lengthy explanation. But the best thing he can do is to show us a picture of the gospel, is to paint us picture and to tell us a story through his actions. That's what he does here. The washing of the feet has been described as a parable of the gospel. The elements contained within these few short verses sum up all that we have seen and all that we will see. And this was a scene that I think once we understand all the details going on here, we're going to realize how hard it is to grasp the fact that Jesus did this. It's unimaginable to think That our savior did what he did it's shocking it's scandalous and it's jesus knows it's the only it's the appropriate description of the hour it seems so simple he rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments he's taking a towel and tied it around his waist he poured out water into a basin and began to wash his disciples feet and wipe them with the towel as he wrapped it around them you know for us foot washing has become a part of christian ceremonies We've seen them at weddings, we've seen them in churches, we've seen them through, through um, moments of service and humility. Where I, I've even seen it where elders, when, when, when elders come on board, they wash the feet of, of the other elders and even the church. And it's this sign of humility and service. And we can find great joy in this. This action was degrading. Humility is not enough. This action was humiliating. When Jesus, or when the disciples saw Jesus do what they did, they were disgusted by it. I mean, not just because the feet are a disgusting body part, let's be real, right? I mean, I'm not going to say more about that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's this, this degrading thing because feet are dirty. Carson says this, D.A. Carson says this. Doubtless, the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet, like, I'm sure if Jesus was like, wash my feet, his disciples would have been like, no. They could not conceive of washing each other's feet. Peter's looking at John going, uh uh-uh, not a chance. Since this task was normally reserved for the lowest of menial servants. In this society, peers would never wash each other's feet, Ever. In fact, to go one step further, Jews insisted that they could not have their feet washed by another Jew. The only people that a Jew would allow to wash their feet would be a Gentile slave because they saw the act of washing somebody else's feet so demeaning, so humiliating that they would would just be repulsed by it. I mean, there are laws in the Talmud about who can wash it and who cannot wash it. And it is very clear that a Jew cannot wash another Jew's feet. And it's even very clear that a a man cannot wash another man's feet. So here Jesus rises from the table after the meal has been had, all of a sudden starts taking off his outer garments, taking on the position and the look of a servant, tying a towel around his waist, Uh, Can you just imagine all of a sudden you're like, well, hey, what are you doing? And gets down on his knees in front of each of his disciples and starts washing their feet. As I've been preaching through this book, just considering Jesus and his life and ministry, I keep having these these conversations and these moments that I compare, kind of, I compare things to. And one of the things that I've been considering in this is, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, there was another cleansing. Here, Jesus cleanses the disciples' feet. We're going to get into that language in a minute. But at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Jesus cleansed the temple, and he cleansed the temple because the Jews had made a, 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 a a marketplace out of the Gentile court they would brought in all their money changers they brought in all of their animals they had brought in all their stuff and they packed it full with all of their marketplace stuff so that the Gentiles would have no place to worship God and Jesus came in and he cleansed them the money collectors out of the Gentile court demonstrating he has a heart for Gentiles Essentially, it's why have you barred the Gentiles' access to God? Well, here, at the end of his ministry, Jesus is performing the action of a Gentile in their mind. Jesus is acting like the Gentile slave. So not only is he allowing access to God in the beginning, he's now willing to look like a Gentile here at the end. He allowed access to the Gentiles. And now in the disciples' mind, he's becoming a Gentile for us. You see, we see Jesus reverse the normal roles. Seen it in chapter 11 and 12. That this is the paradox of the gospel. The master becomes the servant. And he takes on the role of that slave and a servant. He dresses the part. He performs the part. And he washes their feet. The story that we're jumping into, it starts in verse 4. It goes all the way down to 20. It can kind of be broken up and see it in three different sections. The first section we see is that it's just a display of love. The second section we'll see is that it's a symbol of the cleansing that we all need. And the third symbol that we see, it's a model of Christian conduct. We're going to look at the first two this week. We're going to look at the third next week. But the first thing that we have to see is the love here that Christ has for his disciples. His disciples would have been embarrassed by these proceedings. This type of service is hard to see. It's even harder to receive. I love that of the 12 disciples, we only hear one of them speak, and it's like everyone else is just dumbfounded, silenced. Imagine the first guy who has to go through this. You're like, Jesus, what are you doing? What is happening and then all of a sudden they go, oh, you're washing my feet? Jesus, if you thought my feet stink, you could have told me I could have washed my own feet. Jesus, we've already eaten the meal. This happens at the beginning. Jesus, we can, we can call in a slave to do this for you. Why are you doing this? Jesus, you are our master. You are our rabbi. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. You're the King Hosanna that just wrote in, and you're washing my feet? I mean, I, I need you guys to feel the awkwardness, the embarrassment, the humility here. But what I love about this picture is that the description that John offers is that Jesus, in this act of humility and love, is willing to take on the dirt, the grime, the sin. If I can jump ahead of these disciples, notice where he, what he does with this towel. He ties it around his waist. He wraps it around him. I love that he said that both in four, tied it around his waist, and in five, he wrapped it around him. Jesus is going to be transformed into a dirty mess because of this. He's sitting at this table, I'm sure, in relatively clean robes, and he takes those robes off and he puts on a towel that imagine what he's going to look like when he stands up after washing the 12 guys. At our wedding, at, at Amy and I's wedding, we uh, washed each other's feet as part of the ceremony. Um, and it was, a, a, we, we learned some things from that. Number one, putting socks back on after you've washed feet can be a little difficult. But just think about your wedding day, ladies. You're trying to be as clean as possible. You, you're in a white dress. Now, we got married outside in an iris garden, so there was grass around. Amy had Um, on um, open-toed shoes. And when I knelt down to to wash her feet, as clean as she is, it's her wedding day, I didn't see any spot on her, and I used this white towel, and I wiped her foot, and on it, I just saw this dirt smear. And I was like, oh, wow. And instantaneously, I was like folding it up and laying it down, I was like, hopefully nobody sees that. That image is stuck in my mind, because I can imagine that my wife on her wedding day when she was clean... And it created that smudge because she was taking care of herself, concerned about what she did and where she went. How Jesus would look 12 guys later, they were walking around like normal. They weren't concerned about themselves. They had no idea this was coming. Their feet could have been as dirty as ever. And Jesus is using the towel that is tied to him to wash their feet. I mean, just that image. He's clean, and he gets up and he's dirty. Can I just jump ahead here? I know we're going to get here. Hopefully, you can you can see kind of where this goes. Our spotless Lamb of God took on our sin. As we've been walking around on this earth, not concerned with how dirty we get, He took on our sin. He became sin for us so that we could be clean, so that his righteousness could be offered to us, his cleanness could be offered to us, that his perfection, purity could be transferred to us. This is what our Savior does. This act of kneeling down and washing these guys' feet is this act of love because what he sees here is Jesus saying, I am going to take your dirt upon myself and not this towel that I'm going to lay to the side and make sure, you know, clean it from a distance. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to get right down with you and I am going to become dirty because of you. I just want to add some um, kind of other layers here. There's another layer of awkwardness and beauty that I just kind of want to point out. It's not found in John, but it's found in Luke Luke 22. And this is the conversation that had been going on amongst the disciples at this meal before any of this took place. I love that John doesn't even bother to list it. I'm sure he, he could see the awkwardness, but he's like, that's not important. But here is what Luke offers. This is Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles ex- exercised lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the the greatest among you become the youngest, thinking that they're the least here, and the leader of the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, imagine having this dispute. And dad has to come in and break up the fight. Who's greater? Can I sit at your right hand and, and your left hand? I, I want to make sure that my name is great. I want to make sure that I'm remembered for all of my greatness. I, I, I. And Jesus, who is the one whose name should be remembered then, an hour later, five minutes later, 30 minutes later, I don't know, in that same moment after hearing this, gets up and is no longer the one reclining at the table but is the one serving. Jesus shocks all of them by doing the unthinkable. Which leads us to our second point. He's doing what we all need. He's cleansing us. This washing is a symbol of the cleansing we all need. And Peter was the only disciple who was willing to voice the concerns that he had about it. Verse six, And he came to Simon Peter, good old Peter. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Again, let's add all of that Gentile slave context onto it. Lord, he started, Lord, what are you doing? I'll wash your feet. Do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered what I am doing you do not understand now but you will afterwards I, I you can read into this I think appropriately where Peter's going Lord this is embarrassing Lord this is too much Lord what are you doing what what I love here is that ironically Peter thinks that Jesus is breaking the social constructs of rules of service he's like uh, that's not your job we have people for that but actually Jesus or but Peter's the one who's actually breaking the rules. For his opposition to the foot washing looks like uh, an object rooted in modesty. Jesus, this is, this is above you. This is, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. But it's really disobedience and self-righteousness because Peter doesn't want to accept the cleansing that we all need. Peter doesn't like the scandalousness that this action is. Peter doesn't want to be seen as somebody who actually needs his feet washed. Jesus responds and affirms this scandal that he recognizes. He goes, know, you're saying this right. Again, seven, what I am doing now, you do not understand, but you will. You will understand. In this moment, Peter is actually rejecting God's grace. And he's rejecting God's grace because he didn't want to admit that he could do nothing. The gospel is as scandalous as this foot washing is. That's why I believe he opens up with this picture. The gospel is humiliating. The gospel is embarrassing to us. Because everything inside us, can we just admit this, wants to say, I'm pretty good, I can take it from here. I just need a helping hand. I just need three steps I just need a push. I just need some investment, but I got it. The gospel, the, the scandalousness of the gospel is you can't do anything, and Christ has to do it all. It has to be you, you sitting there saying, no, the only cleansing that will ultimately work is the one that Christ does for us. That is hard to sit through. I sympathize with Peter but then good old Peter comes back because he realizes he goes, oh, okay, well, you shall never wash my feet, and Jesus answered, but if I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. Again, there's there's a narrow, you know, the entrance into heaven is through a narrow door, and that's that's not talking about the number of people under the door, but how you get through the door. It is only through Christ and Christ alone. It is only by grace through faith. It is only by the cleansing of Christ, not our own cleansing. That's why Jesus is like, if you want to reject me, if you're unwilling to sit through this humiliating circumstance of recognizing that I am the only one who can wash your feet, I am the only one who can cleanse you, if that's what you're struggling with, well, then it's not going to work because if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So what does good old Peter do? Peter said, Lord, if that's the case, then not my feet only, but my hands and head. And Jesus said, it's a sign, buddy. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Sinclair Ferguson, as he looks at this section, says this, clearly something deeper is going on here than Jesus merely removing dust and dirt. This is a Prophetic action, like those performed by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He's acting out a parable of the gospel, showing them by means of a dramatic sign both who he is and what he has come to do. We're going to leave this scene until next week. We're going to handle the the third um, section next week. But I just want to reference one other text. I will have the... um, this a, a graphic for us t- to look at next week. But if you lay over John thirteen, if you lay that over Philippians two, you see that it's a mere image. That the picture that we see in John thirteen of washing the disciples' feet is a picture of what we proclaim so often around here in Philippians two. I just want to read that that amazing passage in Philippians 2 again and see if you can put these points together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5. Who, though he was in the form of God, got up from the table, took off his outer garments, and tied a towel on his waist. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's, that's the only one I'll do. But emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of us need our feet washed. And we can't wash them. But by the grace of God, He is willing to. He can. That's what resonates from this story. Is that the master did what only the master could do. He cleanses us us in a way that we we try to cleanse ourselves, but he's the only one who can ultimately accomplish it. As we transition to, to communion this morning, as, as I said at the beginning, it's 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 a sacrament, it's a sign, it's it's a reminder of what we get to look towards. The life, death, burial, and resurrection sat that that cleanses us is his. And so if you're here today and, and you, maybe this is your first time at church or first time here and haven't heard the gospel, maybe you're sitting there going, I don't like the fact that the only message that I have as a pastor is to say, you gotta let Jesus cleanse you because you can't do it. Maybe, maybe that's offensive and embarrassing just like it was for the disciples. First, I totally get it. But what I would say is, listen, the only hope we have is when we finally give up and realize oh, the only hope I have is if the master becomes the servant and does the cleansing that I could never accomplish. And so if you're here today and and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you're not looking at him for your only hope in life and death, I would would ask that you let these elements pass you by. We don't want them to confuse you, as we say each week. We don't want it to be something where you look and go, that's what I have to do, that's part of the cleansing. This isn't part of the cleansing. This is to remind you, the person who washed your feet, the person who made you acceptable, the person who loved you to the end is Christ and Christ alone. And if you're here and if you are a believer, you have placed your faith in him. I would just welcome you to take this table with us so that we can, as a body, celebrate what he has done. Let's pray and we can take these elements. Lord, thank you for the cross, thank you for the gospel of John. I thank you for the hope that we have, that we can look outside of ourselves. We can look at the, the finished work of Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in, in the room of just hearing your word, hearing the gospel, seeing baptism, seeing these communion elements pass by, if there's anyone in the room that is that is, is sitting here now wondering, who is my faith in? What am I trusting in? What is all, all this about? Lord, open their eyes to the, to the glories of the gospel. Lord, help them to rest in you. Help them to give up their actions, their struggles, their pursuits, their trying, knowing that it it is impossible for a sinner to accomplish what a holy God has required of us. And yet, Lord we know that you sent your son to take on flesh and do what we could not do. Father, thank you for that. Just be with us now as we take these elements. In your son's name, amen.